From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Greg Bluestein. Today, we're taking time to look back at a busy year in Georgia politics and look ahead at the biggest questions of 2024. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll explore some of the stories and dramatic developments that shaped 2023 in Georgia, from Fulton County charges against Donald Trump to the Gold Dome to the campaign trail. I'm Tia Mitchell. We'll also pose our biggest questions about the year ahead, a year that will surely keep Georgia right in the middle of the national spotlight. I'm Patricia Murphy. Join us as we explore the most pressing political questions that will define 2024 in Georgia politics. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Guys, there's no such thing as a slow news week Mm. in Georgia politics, as you all well know. And we have so much to unpack ahead of 2024. But for a few quick minutes, I want to ditch the politics and get a little touchy-feely. At the start of the year, Politically Georgia looked a lot different. The podcast that I started way back in 2017 with producer Bria Felician has now morphed into a daily radio show. And I wanted to do a quick round from each of you about what you're looking forward to in 2024 with our show. I'll start first since I'm putting you on the spot. I'm looking forward to delving even deeper into Georgia politics with this team. In the first five weeks of the show, guys, we had a U.S. Senator, Georgia's House Speaker, a presidential candidate, members of Congress, the legislature, Democratic and Republican leaders, savvy strategists, brilliant professors, and so many of our wonderful colleagues on, and I cannot wait for what's next. Yeah, Greg, I think exactly what you said was going to be my answer, which is the guests. You know, I want us to get hear from more people, diverse voices, um, more professors, more academics, more strategists, more activists, and of course, more elected officials who are making the decisions at the state, local and national level. So I can't wait to see who we hear from in 2024. I have got to say I have been knocked out by how smart the conversations among us and with the guests we've had joining us have been. I've loved working with uh, the three of you, Tia, Greg, and uh, Patricia. And, and I'll add a personal note. I mean, I'm the guy who's <laughs> I'm the oldest on the team. I've had a very long career of covering politics. The fact that I get a chance to continue doing this at this point and to do it with all of you is just wonderful for me. And so 2024 is going to be a great year to talk politics. And I am excited about getting out on the road with the show and um, really taking advantage of the presidential election year because there's just nothing like covering presidential campaigns. Um, I'm planning to go to Iowa. Greg, I know you're going to go to New Hampshire. We're also going to have a legislative session about to start in January. There will be conventions. There will be rallies. So, I mean, there's we are going to have so much to bring back to our listeners and I think that is one of the best parts about this show is that we can do it from the studio we can do it from the road and bring people into the world that we're covering one foot on the campaign trail the other foot here in the studio well before we kind of pin a uh, pin up 
Put a pin Put in Put a it. pin on this conversation. <laughs> Maybe it's not always so smart. There we go. I want to close by saying what a pleasure it's been to work with all of you, including our amazing production team, Shaney B., Natalie Mendenhall, as well as our engineers, Matt McWilliams, Rich Firth, and everyone working behind the scenes at both the AJC and WABE. And to you, our listeners, we don't take any of your support for granted, and we can't wait to take you along with us on the ride in 2024. Okay. Before we jump ahead to 2024, we got to look back at the top moments of 2023. And at the end of last year, Patricia and I wrote a series of questions and we did a podcast on what we thought would define this year in Georgia politics. Some of the questions were answered, some of them were not. I first want to go to the num- the first one, which we do have an answer to, Patricia. Will Donald Trump face criminal charges for trying to overturn Georgia's election? Uh, Yes, he will. And yes, he has. Um, What's amazing is that at this time last year, we really didn't know the answer to that. Now that you look back in retrospect, it all seems to have followed um, a very uh, logical path the way it's been laid out. But it has so many things with Donald Trump have never happened before in American history. So just the idea that a former president could be indicted was just hard to wrap your head around. And now that he has been indicted, not just in Georgia, but in three other jurisdictions, Mm -hmm. that opens up a whole other series of questions and things that are going to be completely without any precedent in American history. But we did um, pretty, pretty quickly get the answer to that question, and um, we were down at the Fulton County Courthouse when Donald Trump and his motorcade of about 60 cars um, rolled on in, and he went and got a fingerprint and a mugshot just like everybody else. Well, the other thing that you all didn't know, uh, Greg, you and Patricia, when you asked that question, was that there would be a RICO indictment mm-hmm. that would, in fact, take uh, create 19 defendants, 18-plus Donald Trump, Fonnie Willis turned this into a sweeping uh, investigation and indictment of the efforts to overturn the um, 2020 presidential election, which is one of the reasons it is um, being so closely watched, because it's the entire web that she's looking at uh, around the country. Yeah, and as of this taping... Four of those co-defendants have pleaded guilty to lesser charges, but Patricia, uh, but Tia, this has been part of the the, the sort of the, the strategy for Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. She's taken on some big cases before, never this this big, but her, her strategy is often uh, in, encompassed a broader range of defendants so yeah. that she can get, uh, pursue racketeering charges. Yeah, I think if there's any surprise in what actually came down, it was the number of co-defendants, the breadth of the of the indictment which didn't just deal with what happened in Georgia but brought in some of the stop the steal efforts in other states as part of the evidence in the Fulton County case and it is quite broad um i also think you know just Fonnie Willis has kind of become this national figure mm-hmm. as a result that you know she did decide to bring these charges that the Fulton County case stands out now because it's a it's not a federal case. It's not something that even if Trump is elected president again, he can't really affect this case as much as he can the others. So it's still going to be one to watch now that we have our answer and know that Trump has been charged with very serious crimes. And Patricia, one outstanding question we still have among many is when this trial will begin. Because, again, as of this taping, we're looking at a potential August start date. That's at least the start date that Fonnie Willis has suggested. We haven't had a ruling from the judge yet, Fulton County Judge McAfee. Um, uh, But we certainly have heard from Donald Trump's attorneys saying that even by holding a trial in August, it would be election interference on the judicial system's part because it's so close to the November 2024 election. Yeah. And there, you know, used to be a time when people would not be charged in uh, in any close proximity to an election just for fear of the mere charges would tip the election one way or another. So having a trial that will be televised more than likely, um, you can absolutely see uh, Donald Trump preparing to argue that that would be election interference as well. Um, You know, the one thing we didn't know about these charges when they came down, it never occurred to me 
that it would make Donald Trump a stronger candidate mm. for president among Republican yeah. voters instead of a weaker one. I think in my mind, I had assumed if he is indicted, it will be just a cascade of troubles for the president. Of course, it has been a cascade of troubles, but getting elected is not one of them so far. I mean, he's polling higher than he ever had. And it's it's almost easy to think that if he weren't indicted, he would be a more traditional candidate. He'd have to do these uh, debates and it w- he would just be falling off the radar a little bit. But the way he's maneuvered it, he's really quite deftly used it to his advantage. Yeah, as we look ahead in January, we're going to go straight to the Iowa caucuses after the new year, New Hampshire, um, South Carolina. And we'll see if the polling rings true, because, Patricia, you're so right. Everything we're seeing is that Donald Trump is like full steam ahead. There's no stopping him. Like the fact that he's polling higher than 50 percent in Iowa, which is a state he didn't win. Um, when he first ran for president um, in, what was that, 2016? All the years run together. But Bill, you can see also that divide in the polls where it was those first charges brought against him, those first criminal charges that really helped him separate from Ron DeSantis, who is in a much stronger polling position before these criminal charges came. Yeah, I think it's a little combination of both. First, on the Trump side of things, remember that statement that Trump made. um, He'd already had three indictments against him when we were waiting for the Fonnie Willis charges. And Trump said uh, in in a rally, he said, I've been indicted three times, one more, and I'm sure I'll be the next president of the United States. But I think we also have to say that one of the things we learned during this year was how difficult it can be to go from being a statewide candidate for governor, as Ron DeSantis was successfully, to suddenly becoming a national candidate. And over the years, we've seen any number of people who've experienced that same problem. DeSantis has not played as well on the national stage as he did on the state of Florida stage. Note to Governor Brian Kemp. And that segues us perfectly (laughs) to the next big question, which was, how will Georgia's top politicians navigate their rising national profiles? Governor Kemp is one of them, right? Uh, He emerged from the 2022 election stronger than ever after beating back a Donald Trump-backed primary opponent in David Perdue and then defeating Stacey Abrams in that rematch. Uh, He traveled to Israel. He traveled to Davos, Switzerland to bolster his international appeal. He, or at least his international policies, he uh, traveled the nation as well. He became a a bigger player in the RGA. Um, Of course, he was at the legislature pushing through some of his top priorities. And he wanted to stay in the national mix. He wanted to continue to have a role. Um, He he, he still has not endorsed any candidate. He might not until uh, a few months into the 2024 year. But at the same time, he's made clear that if Donald Trump is the nominee, he will still back him. Right. I think it's so interesting. Um, You know, in some ways, Governor Kemp represents what mainstream or establishment Republicans want to be the party of the future. But what the Republican electorate is indicating is not the party of the future. So where does that leave him? And I mean, that's, I guess, a question that we'll see answered as the years go on. But I think he he has a lane. It helps that unlike Ron DeSantis, Governor Kemp is more popular in his own state. And I think Governor Kemp's win, his reelection win, spoke more, said more than Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis won like by a landslide and people gave him a lot of credit. But part of that is because his opponent was very weak. Mm -hmm. He didn't really build a coalition. Governor Kemp built on his coalition when he ran for reelection, got more voters, got some people who might not have supported him, said, hey, he did all right. So I'm with him this time. And um, so to me, that gives him more credibility on the national stage. I think we have to kind of put the uh, uh, rising national uh, profiles that you talk about in terms of Georgia politicians into two buckets. Um, I get that there are people out there who recognize how conservative Governor Kemp is. They're not happy that he is such a conservative governor that he passed the six-week abortion ban as one example. 
Um, but I do think you have to say uh, that regardless of whether you uh, uh, support him or not, he's handled himself with dignity in his national profile. He has talked honestly about Donald Trump on any number of occasions now. Um, and Brad Raffensberg is another example of that, someone who's really gained a big national uh, profile. And he, too, has talked about elections, talked about Donald Trump in a way that I think, again, whether you like their conservative politics or not, you can say these Georgians are people who are acting with a certain amount of uh, respectful respect and dignity out there. Now you've got the other bucket. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who um, I recognize there are people who love her. The people in her district love her. But she clearly is someone who has decided her national profile will be built around being as outrageous as she possibly can be. One last quick thing. I think after the 2022 election loss, I'm interested in watching how Stacey Abrams' national profile Mm. continues. I don't really quite know what she's thought of on the national stage right now. Yeah, she's she's certainly kind of tiptoeing back into the public sphere right now. She's involved in electrifying initiatives, like quite literally electrifying Mm -hmm. (laughs) initiatives, and and others uh, for green energy. But Patricia, I wanted to bring back to Marjorie Taylor Greene because, um, you know, when we talk about politicians navigating their rising national profile— Marjorie Taylor Greene's right in the middle of that. And she will, if Donald Trump is the nominee, there will be a legitimate talk about her. I don't know if it'll happen, but at least there'll be a lot of talk about her joining his ticket. Oh, absolutely. And she has been um, Donald Trump's probably his most loyal and most vocal supporter. She was also at the Fulton County Jail when Donald Trump was booked and had his fingerprints taken. She was on the other side of the jail telling any reporter who would listen why these charges were trumped up and not fair. Um, But at the same time, she had a really interesting alliance with Kevin McCarthy while he was speaker. I think that that helped to legitimize Marjorie Taylor Greene for that moment in time. Um, She became a much more um, kind of constant presence on the national scene. She uh, got her committee assignments back. She was given leadership positions. Um, However, now that uh, McCarthy is off the scene, Tia wrote about this recently, really, really effectively. Um, Green is back to being um, and embracing that concept of running against Washington and being an outsider. Um, it served her very well to be aligned with McCarthy, but I think it's much, it's a much more natural place for her to be. It's the language she talks is the one of the outsider, and that's that hard, hard, hard Trump lane. That's where she most comfortable. That's where she started. And I'm sure that's where she's going to end. Yeah, it was interesting when McCarthy was speaker and uh, he and Marjorie Taylor Greene forged this bond. He benefited from that. He benefited from her loyalty. He needed her because the far right never really trusted Kevin McCarthy. They never really felt he was conservative enough. And so she had, he had in her someone who did stick up for him. And we know she has a lot of credibility on the far right. But on the other hand, because Marjorie Taylor Greene decided to be loyal to McCarthy, that meant she was willing to go along with him and some of the things he was trying to do and was less willing to kind of buck his leadership the way other far right lawmakers did throughout his speakership. And so in a lot of ways, it was considered that he helped her kind of or encouraged her to pipe down just a little bit, play a little bit nicer, um, not be so combative, and and that he was able to rein her in. And so that's where um, Republicans kind of benefited from having a somewhat tamer or a little bit more willing to go with the flow Marjorie Taylor Greene. And the minute that he left, she no longer had that incentive to, you know, kind of moderate her her approach and go with the flow and play nice. And we're seeing that now she does not clearly does not have that same relationship with Speaker Mike Johnson. She criticizes him a lot in ways she never criticized Kevin McCarthy, even though, quite frankly, Kevin McCarthy had to make some of the same decisions yeah. that Speaker Mike 
Spike Johnson is having to make. Um, but the, the relationship matters there. And that's just so interesting to watch. Yeah, I want to stay with you here because there's a third Georgia politician with who's navigating a rising national profile. That's Senator Raphael Warnock. Yeah. Who came in first in five straight Georgia elections, has raised more than a lot of presidential candidates has ever raised in the in his two U.S. Senate campaigns. Um, you know, of course, still spends many Sundays ser- delivering sermons at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where mm-hmm. he is still the senior pastor and is taking on, after his victory of a full six-year term, uh, you know, a sort of different role in the U.S. Senate. You recently had a chance to spend a lot of time with him. Yeah, I've been spending time with him, um, working on our coverage of him. And as he his profile is rising, I followed him around during the Congressional Black Caucus Week in September. And he was a celebrity, literally people stopping him in the hallways, wanting to take pictures, wanting to talk to him, just freaking out. I, we went to brunch and some lady was like, I know you. I know you're famous. I, you know how it is. And so, and and he kind of shrugs off this talk of him being a political celebrity. But then I asked, I said, have you done late night TV? He was like, you know what? I have. Yes. I was like, you're a celebrity. <laughs> you know, I mean, you might not know Beyonce, but I'm pretty sure Beyonce knows who you are. So, um, and he's, quite frankly, in the conversation for 2028. Mm-hmm. Um and he's open to the conversation. I don't necessarily think he has it on his, you know, um, vision board. Um, he never aspired to be president. He's always wanted to be a pastor. But I think politics is something that kind of evolved from his role as a pastor and activist. But he is open to the discussion. And if enough people he trusts says he could be a viable candidate, I see him running for president. If not in 2028, then maybe another time in the future. You know, I think back to uh, earlier, you know, the 2010s and on, when there were a lot of people who were encouraging Raphael Warnock to run for uh, if some uh, statewide. Or, oh, yeah. Right, exactly. And I have to tell you, um, we usually see people like Raphael Warnock from a distance. Um, the, the listeners out there especially, we're lucky we get to talk to them occasionally. But if you want to see the power of Raphael Warnock, I cannot tell you how wonderful it is to go to a Sunday service at Ebenezer Baptist Church when he is preaching. It's something we've done in our family over the years, long before he was a candidate for public office. And it's just, for even this Jewish boy, one of the most wonderful ways you can spend a Sunday morning. He's an extraordinary uh, speaker and leader. Whether he deserves to be president or not, the public will make that decision, but he's really something to watch. Well, Patricia, that dovetails to another giant question we had last year looking at this year, which is how will Georgia start to shape the 2024 field? How will our politicians, our policies, our voters already start to influence the, the nominating contest on the Repu- Republican side and, of course, Joe Biden's re-election victory? Um, right off the bat, early early 2023, we had Joe Biden kind of make up, make good with Senator Warnock, who ran away from him during the entire uh, 2022 Senate campaign. He visited Ebenezer Baptist Church. He came to Atlanta. He pushed for voting rights. Um, We haven't had a a, a surge of candidates here in Georgia yet. Most of them are still focused on Iowa and New Hampshire and, to a degree, South Carolina, Patricia. But I think that's going to (laughs) change pretty quickly. And we certainly heard from New Jersey, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie on these airwaves saying that Republicans cannot win Georgia, cannot win the White House without winning Georgia. Yeah, Georgia is not going to play a big role in the Democratic or Republican primary process, more than likely. Um, These are going to be primaries that are may even be kind of pretty well wrapped up by the time it gets to Georgia. We'll be voting in the the presidential primaries um, the week after Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday, uh, California and Texas are also voting. So, you know, the the, um, suspense may be over by the time it gets to Georgia. But when you talk about the general election, that's when Georgia will be the center of the bullseye for all of these presidential campaigns. Um, Republicans um, have said, and not just Chris Christie, Every single Republican campaign has said Georgia is a must win. Um, We've heard it from strategists. We've heard it from other journalists. There's no path 
to the White House for Republicans without winning Georgia. Um, Democrats uh, need Georgia. They may not need it as uh, as badly. You could sort of cobble it together with one or two other states, but um, it was a big piece of Joe Biden's victory. They do not want to lose Georgia the next time around. Um, so we are going to see loads of money, um, loads of messaging, loads of surrogates, loads of candidates coming down. But I do think the 2022 model of the swing voter is going to play very heavily on these campaigns' Mm -hmm. minds. The Warnock-Kemp voter, we had somebody at an event the other night who stood up and said, I am a Biden-Warnock-Kemp Rappensburger voter. What a mix. Um, (laughs) we, We should have locked him up. (laughs) <laughs> right. We needed his information. We, we, we have it. Okay, good. And yeah, come down and conduct their uh, conduct their uh, in-person focus groups with this man because that's the voter they need. And Georgia will play a huge role. And those voters will play a huge role in Georgia deciding who's the next president. Yeah, Bill, as tumultuous as, as, as you know, this last year has been, it has been a little bit calmer on the, on the campaign trail, at least in Georgia, uh, because as Patricia said, it's going to really heat up. In 2024, there wasn't as many visits. There wasn't as much focus or attention. Very few Republicans were even taking sides in the 2024 race. We've had only a handful of endorsements for Donald Trump or anyone else. But that's about to change. Yeah, um, uh, clearly. um, I've been a little surprised, Greg, and I'd be interested in your take on it since you spent so much time talking to legislators. Um, I don't quite understand why more Republican legislators who were all in for Donald Trump uh, in 2020, many of whom thought that they should have a special session to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential race, which is what Trump asked them to do. I'm not quite sure why they're holding back. Clearly, Trump is way out in front in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina comes next. I, I'm not. What are they waiting for? Yeah, well, we've seen a few more start to endorse, start to pick sides. Um, there is a campaign strategy there. We had Buddy Carter, the STO, mm. broke the story a few days ago about Buddy Carter endorsing Donald Trump. Um, but a lot of them are looking to Governor Kemp. A lot of them are looking to mm-hmm. to to other Republican leaders. Now, the big exception, of course, is Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, right. who endorsed uh, Donald Trump really early. And will be in Iowa. We expect them to be on the campaign trail there as a surrogate for Donald Trump early next year. Okay, we have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll look at the top political questions facing Georgia in 2024. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze. Tropical beach. An air freshener can make your car smell like paradise. A drive to Daytona Beach will actually get you there. Beach on. Plan your trip today at DaytonaBeach.com. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has a special offer for Politically Georgia podcast listeners like you. If you subscribe today, you can get three months of unlimited digital access for just 99 cents. That's all of our sports coverage, politics, breaking news, investigations, food and dining, and so much more on AJC.com. Plus, access to our e-paper and our assortment of newsletters. So join our community right now by going to AJC.com slash start. That's AJC.com slash start. So you always know what's really going on. Guys, we are talking about the biggest questions we're looking for in 2024 in terms of Georgia politics. And we're going to go around the uh, the table here, but I'm going to go first with one of my biggest questions because we're already seeing it start to play out even in 2023. Seems like a long way out, but it's not. Looking at how the big flock of up-and-coming politicians already jockeying for 2026 races here in Georgia are influencing politics here in 2024. And Bill, I think we're going to start to see that really quickly at the Georgia legislative session. Mm-hmm. We already have Lieutenant Governor Burt Jones, who is widely seen as a likely gubernatorial contender in 2026, talk about proposals to arm teachers with guns, to pay, to pay teachers to take uh, firearms classes, to bring guns to schools, um, talk about banning social media platforms like TikTok, other sort of hardline Republican stances that he hopes will encourage Republican voters and, and galvanize Republican voters, but he's not the only one who will be out there with these policies. We already have a number of Republicans who have at least indicated they they are very interested in running for governor. Attorney General Chris Carr, uh, former U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler. No one knows what Governor Kemp will do. He can't run for another term as governor, but he certainly could run for U.S. Senate in 2026. And, you know, he, the governor, is going to have to navigate all this too, because he doesn't want to be looked like as a lame duck 
you know, barely a year into his term, yeah. uh, second term as governor. Well, it's going to be fascinating. You started with Burt Jones. Uh, there are several things that are fascinating about him. Um, we, there, he still has the, th- the threat of potential indictment as part of the election conspiracy uh, 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 hanging over his head. Um, he was pulled out of the group that Fonnie Willis wanted to indict. He was a target of her investigation when uh, uh, when the court ruled that she had a conflict of interest that we don't really need to go into that made it impossible for her to uh, go after him in a, in a way that was uh, fair and straightforward. He said the conflict was too much, but we're still waiting. I mean, it's it's going to be up to the, uh, the, the prosecuting attorney's counsel mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to decide if they're going to appoint a special counsel to investigate him, which certainly could have an impact on what happens to him in 2026. But in the meantime, it's going to be fascinating to watch how Burt Jones and Governor Kemp deal with each other. I think we're, we all kind of believe that there's likely to be more confrontations between the two of them in 2024's legislative session. Well, I think to that point, Bill, um, the decision from Burt Jones to get out so early and to make it known that he's considering um, a 26 run, um, it was it's been apparent for some time because he has come out with policies that are really quite different from Governor Kemp's, mm-hmm. a lot more conservative. And Brian Kemp is a conservative, so you have to get really far to the right to start talking about some of those issues. And so it puts Governor Kemp in a really unusual position, not just the um, the effort by him and his staff to not look like a lame duck because he's got three more sessions left. I mean, he's got a lot of a lot of miles left on the tires. Um, but then when Burt Jones has put forward some of these very conservative positions, the immediate um, next step is to ask Governor Kemp, well, do you agree with that? Is that something you would sign? So we were at a press conference recently for Governor Kemp, and he was announcing um, what they called this huge major state tax initiative. It would be to accelerate an already announced reduction in state income taxes. Um, <laughs> a lot the of first question was, <laughs> what about Burt Jones's idea to just eliminate the state income tax? Um, and that put the governor and the speaker who have not endorsed that idea in the position of having to sort of you know, bat down or let summer a position that is far to the right of them that makes their own conservative record look not as conservative as it really is. And that's not a position they want to be in. So I want to ask you guys, you know, we've talked about Burt Jones and he could be kind of the Trumpy MAGA candidate for governor in 2026. Um, There's talk about Chris Carr, who would be more in line with Governor Kemp. He also stood up to Trump at times in efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Do we think Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger has any interest? And if so, wouldn't he kind of immediately kind of leapfrog Chris Carr because of his higher name recognition and higher prominence as someone who stood up to Donald Trump? Yeah, and we asked him that very question at a recent Politically Georgia event where he did an artful dodge and didn't answer it at all. Um, he's certainly someone who could raise the money, who, who was also very independently wealthy, so he could self-finance a campaign, too, for statewide office, whether it be governor or U.S. Senate. Um, but his his challenge would be in the primary. His challenge, and we've, look, I'm the first person to tell you that that I wrote, I didn't write him off, but but I was very skeptical of his chances of re-election in 2022 when Jody Heiss, the, the former Congress, the then congressman, got in the race with Donald Trump's endorsement at the time when it seemed like Trump's endorsement was this golden ticket. And we saw what happened. Uh, Raffensperger easily defeated um, Jody Heiss. He had some help from crossover voters, but he would have won without a single crossover voter who, uh, voting in the Republican primary. Um, so it's you never count Brad Raffensperger out. But at the same time, it's going to be tough. It's going to be crowded. And we're talking about several several Republican likely candidates with a lot of money also running, including former Senator Kelly Leffler, who right. could very well run. Yeah, I want to – Kelly Leffler is interesting, and I would love to hear your, your take on her, all of you. But in the meantime, Chris Carr, Patricia, he's already made it clear he wants to run for governor in 2026. He's out there raising money, so there's, which is kind of right now the quiet part of, of a campaign. But it'll be interesting to see what his legislative agenda for 2024 focuses on and highlights 
in the sense that obviously he wants to put forward some measures that might in fact position him more favorably as a candidate for 2026. Well, yeah, I think public safety is already a big issue for him and his decision to indict uh, with RICO charges uh, 60 of the protesters who are who have come out against um, uh, the Atlanta Police Training Center. Um, you certainly don't want to call that nakedly political, but it certainly does raise his profile on an issue that already has a very, very high profile. So he'll position himself in that way. Um, not a never Trumper, but not somebody who is conservative. And uh, Republicans really believe that public safety is one of the top two issues here in the state, even in a statewide election, it's a big, big thing right behind the economy for GOP voters. You know what else is interesting to me about Chris Carr is that um, for the most part, he stayed out of Donald Trump's uh, sights. Donald Trump has not spent as much time attacking Chris Carr uh, as he certainly did Brad Raffensperger and uh, Brian Kemp. And you've got to wonder um, how that might help him uh, in a primary campaign in 2020. Yeah, he's just was, not to be a tar- big target. Yeah, he was a target. But you're right. Yeah. Not, not as big as Governor Kemp. He did back a primary challenger against Chris Carr. Yeah. Um, he was upset that Chris Carr was 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 encouraging or was telling other attorneys general why he was not backing a Texas push to invalidate Georgia's election results. But guys, it also strikes me, um, uh, Patricia, is this session is going to be a litmus test this upcoming legislative session on 2026? Because think about some of the big issues that could come up, right? Uh, a renewed push to to combat anti-Semitism under Georgia's hate crimes law, a potential new effort, a new compromise over Medicaid expansion that could result in the expansion of Medicaid for the first time in a decade, um, mental health reforms and uh, the second phase of, the, of that effort, new efforts to punish Fonnie Willis. So, P- Patricia, we're looking at a number of these issues that could really become front and center and that the candidates in the future could be tested on. That's right. Also, you know, don't forget, it'll be an open race on the Democratic side of the aisle for governor. And there are members of the legislature who we already know are considering statewide races. So I'll be looking for the most vocal Democrats on those issues. And what do they choose to step forward on? And what do they choose to remain a little bit quiet about? Because in Georgia, of course, it's now one of those states where you have to both win your primary and win a general election. So when you think about that Medicaid piece, I mean, if Burt Jones could get that across, along with his um, certificate of need um, program that he's been pushing for um, all year, I mean, that starts to look like a general election issue as well. So um, as much as we'll absolutely see those really hardline social issues come up, um, there could be some general election uh, Mm -hmm. wins for these candidates that they're thinking about for 2026 as well. And one issue, Greg, you didn't mention because we don't think the legislature is going to touch it, but it's going to be a big issue is abortion. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't expect Republicans to try for more limitations. They have a six week ban in that um, most of them, I think, are mm-hmm. happy with. But Democrats are going to keep building this up as something that Republicans don't want to touch and trying to force them to weigh in on the issue. Keep it in the public eye, knowing that for Democrats, they consider abortion a big winner on the ballot. Exactly. Just like in the special session that we just had a a few weeks ago here in Georgia, where Republicans forced Democrats to go on the record on the Atlanta Public uh, Safety Project complex and uh, Israel. I expect Democrats to try at least, and they might not get a vote on it, but at least try to force the question uh, for Republicans on abortion and some other issues. Tia, I want to get to your the biggest question you're looking at in 2024. So the biggest question I'm looking at is there's all this polling on what do voters value when they're considering what candidates to support? Um, what do they value as far as effectiveness of their elected officials? And the question on whether pushing for your policy priorities should uh, trump being willing to compromise with the other side. And more and more in both parties, we're seeing voters saying, insist on winning more than compromise. And Pew just did, Pew Research just put out a poll that says 
supporters of Donald, it, it, Republicans in general are evenly divided. About half say compromise is more important. About half say the issues are more important. But among supporters of President Donald Trump, 72 percent um, I'm sorry, 63 percent. So more supporters of Donald Trump said pushing for what you want is more important than compromise. And if this is what people are being sent to Washington into state houses with this with this mandate from their voters to push for what you want, don't compromise. What does this say about the ability to govern in states like Georgia and also in Washington? I think that's a really excellent point. And uh, clearly, you know, we've we've had a conversation just uh, about a week or so ago when uh, Drew Fer- when Drew Ferguson announced mm-hmm. that he was dropping out. Uh, he decided to retire uh, from uh, the House, and now it's an open uh, race. And and the the question, one of the questions that we asked, and in fact, Lynn Westmoreland, who once held that third district seat, was our guest. And one of the questions we asked was, Mr. Westmoreland. Is there anybody who really needs – why do you want to go to serve in the U.S. House considering that it's a toxic environment in which people are not accomplishing issues? They're at loggerheads on almost everything. And I think that, that Tia, therefore, asks a really important question. Yeah, and, and Patricia, that's the question that – you know, if you look back at 2016 coverage, 2020 coverage, that's the question we kept on hearing as well, Right. Are, are, are voters more interested in folks who – is compromise a bad word, right? Is compromise still a bad word? And here in Georgia, the legislature, we do see a lot of compromise. Uh, we, we tend to write about the more divisive issues, but the vast majority of measures and resolutions and bills that pass under the Gold Dome are either unanimous or overwhelmingly uh, supported by both parties. But in Washington, it's a different story. <laughs> Washington, it's a different story, and that's why we're seeing so many of the big issues flow down to the states for decisions. Um, Washington has become so partisan, so calcified, even so dysfunctional within each party. When you talk about House Republicans, so little is really getting done and legislated. So all of a sudden you see all of the big decisions on guns, on abortion, um, on taxes. A lot of that has come back down to the state level for decisions. And that's where we're seeing the lobbyists. That's where we're seeing um, a lot of the people coming to really know that they can roll up their sleeves and make some decisions that are really going to be put in to effect very, very quickly. And very soon in January, we're going to see that play out in the U.S. Capitol. There's government funding shutdown deadlines mid-January, another one in February. And so it's going to come back to that with Republicans and with a slim majority. Can they find common ground with Democrats to get something done? Okay, we got to take a quick break. When we come back, we go from Peachtree to Pennsylvania Avenue and talk more about what we can look forward to as the 2024 election cycle heats up even more. From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Twice daily, delivered straight to your email, you can receive the AJC's Politically Georgia newsletter. Stay on top of all the important news, scoops, and exclusives from me and the rest of the AJC's politics team. Just go to AJC.com newsletters and sign up today. AJC.com newsletters. We're going out with a bang and pushing ahead to the big questions of 2024. So, Patricia, what's the biggest question you're watching next year in Georgia politics? So my big question is a bit existential for the Republican Party. Who are you? Um, In uh, 2020, obviously, that we had a battleground state, um, but Republicans went by just humongous margins for uh, President Trump at the time. Just he was far and away favorite, favorite, favorite. Um, by 2022, Brian Kemp, who had a 
highly, highly publicized feud with Donald Trump, um, defeated the Trump candidate, David Perdue, by 50 points. And then in 2022, um, for the general election wins by seven points. So who are these voters here in Georgia where we see these two elections that just behaved so differently? 2020, real battleground state. 2022, looking extremely red if you have to go up and down the ballot. All statewide contests go to Republicans by very large margins. So who exactly are these voters? And the ones that have the biggest questions about are those moderate Republican voters? Yeah, except for, of course, the, the Raphael Warnock, right? Who, oh, who was able to me, attract of course, Warnock, those yeah. Camp Warnock voters, those split ticket voters, which once again proved we've had two election cycles in, the, in a row where there's been a significant number of crossover voters, of split ticket voters who've really been decisive in Georgia. In, in 2020, we heard from a lot of those um those former Republican, disaffected Republicans who couldn't stomach voting for Donald Trump, who voted for Joe Biden, voted for Senators Warnock and Ossoff. In 2022, we saw a number of those voters say they couldn't stomach voting for Herschel Walker, but still back Governor Kemp and other Republicans running for statewide constitutional offices. Where do they go next year? Yeah, the question is, because we're talking about the Republican primaries, we know that in a general election, some of the MAGA more harder right candidates did not do well in a lot of swing states. Um, And that's part of the reason why Democrats had such a great midterm uh, showing. Um, But in the primary, voters seem to say one thing and then do another sometimes. And then also Donald Trump's hold on Republican voters cannot go understated. Also, it cannot go understated that the Republican Party, you know, we talk a lot about voters of color and whether the Republican Party can bring them back into the fold. But when we look at the actual Republican Party electorate, it's getting more white, more focused on males, more focused on voters that represent kind of more rural areas and um That's becoming the Republican coalition, but that also doesn't speak well to the ability to win in a general election. So I think there's just going to be a lot of I'll be looking forward to see some of the turnout in these early voting states. What does the Republican electorate look like in 2024? And if it continues to look like a MAGA Trump reporter that's, you know, very Christian nationalist um, and very white and very straight and and very male focused, then um, maybe those more centrist or mainstream candidates won't have as much um success in the primary, but that also means the party may not have as much success in general elections. And Bill, the other part of this is do disaffected voters just stay home, you know, who aren't happy with, and we don't know if Donald Trump will be the nominee, but if they're not happy with either Republican nominee or or, or President Joe Biden's re-election, but do a lot of voters just say, I'm, I'm tapping out uh, of all this completely? I think that's a really uh, essential question that we're going to be looking at. You know, it's been interesting to hear Democrats react to the polling that we've had recently, which shows Donald Trump moving ahead of Joe Biden in battleground states, including a CNN poll, which shows him ahead of, uh, of uh, uh, Trump ahead of Biden here in Georgia. Um, I've suggested what Democrats are saying and, and what I think maybe makes some sense is that if it comes down to a binary choice, between Trump and Biden. Will some of those voters who don't like either of them, who might have said they'd sit on the sidelines, will they in fact decide, no, no, I've got to get to the polls. I don't want to see four more years of Donald Trump. Or maybe the opposite. Say, Biden's been a disaster. I've got to go vote for Trump. Patricia? Yeah, I think the question is, you know, I agree with Bill about that binary choice. And then the big question becomes, though, do they go to the polls at all? There are so Mm -hmm. many people saying, I don't want to vote for either Joe Biden or Donald Trump. What if we took them at their word and said they're not going to vote for Joe Biden or Donald Trump? Then what does that race look like? Okay, Bill, what's your top question for 2024? Mitha Pristone. The United States Supreme Court uh, decided uh, not long ago that it would take up a case 
uh, about whether or not mifepristone, which is a drug that women can take in their home if they choose an abortion, and the court is going to look at whether FDA had the authority to uh, authorize it for uh, being sent out to uh, women. Um, and and their decision, they haven't just said what day, they, what the date for when they'll take up this case, but it is expected that they will issue a decision by the end of June, which puts it right in the middle of the presidential election. And if we have one more case that uh, denies uh, pro-choice factions uh, the right to choose an abortion, what will that do to the general election? Yeah, I guess I just don't know what the Supreme Court is going to do. They've issued a few surprising decisions that I don't think people expected to come down, particularly um, when it came to the Voting Rights Act, upholding that portion of it. So I'm not 100 percent sure where this court is going, but putting that kind of a decision about whether who women women who live in states where there are abortion bans, can they receive these through the mail mm-hmm. um, that once that decision ends up at the Supreme Court, it just highlights the fact that a presidential election is at this point a de facto election for the next member of the Supreme Court as well. And it also just highlights, again, what's at stake at in um, in so many states with abortion still being left up to the states because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And what Democrats are saying is that cases like this, cases like what we saw in Texas, shows that even though Republicans kind of have answers that sound good about, well, we want to limit abortion, but you can still get it if you really need it. And, you know, it's up to the states. And if you have the choice, you can get it. And Democrats will hold up these examples and say, well, if if the Supreme Court limits access to abortion pills, then no, it's not left up to the states. Well, very, very quickly, that's exactly right. The Supreme Court said states make your decision about abortion, and now they're taking up a case that will affect, could affect whether women in states can get access to this pill. And of course, we've seen a series of abortion rights ballot initiatives succeeding even in deep red states, so that will continue to affect our politics in 2024. Okay, that is all the time we have for this week, this month, and this year. Thanks so much for joining us as we look forward to 2024. I just want to say how thankful we are for your support, your encouragement, your feedback. Politically Georgia is on every weekday morning at 10 on 90.1 WABE and streaming at wabe.org. The show is also available on demand on Apple, Spotify, or any podcast platform. Join us again in the new year, 2024, on January 2nd for Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Ocean breeze, tropical beach, pina colada. You can buy an air freshener to make your car smell like you're in an oceanside paradise. Or, better yet, you can point your car toward Daytona Beach and come experience the real thing. Visit DaytonaBeach.com to discover all there is to see, do, and enjoy along the world's most famous beach. Daytona Beach, Florida. Beach on. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.